from Sora Schools, it's Sora Learning Lab, a show where we dive into the world of learning research and innovative pedagogy. Through interviews with education researchers, advocates, and innovators, we'll explore the ideas and trends behind the future of learning. Dr. Megan Sumeraki is a cognitive psychologist and an associate professor at Rhode Island College. In January 2016, she co-founded the Learning Scientist Organization. Thanks for being on the show today, Megan. Thank you so much for having me. This is exciting. The first question I usually like to lead off with is your background. So I assume one day you didn't just wake up and say, I want to be a cognitive psychologist. So what got you into this field? Why is it something you want to spend your time doing? Gosh, so I, it depends on how far back we want to go. Um, oh, feel free to I, go way back. <laughs> um, when I was in high school, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. I was going to go to law school. Um, I, and I, I just, I'm really, my sort of side interests, I really like true crime. Um, and so I, and I like arguing, and I like logic. And so I thought, oh, great, I'll become an attorney. Um, and then I, I majored in psychology because I, I was really interested in it and interested in people. And I thought that that aspect would be would be helpful for me going to law school. Um, and during my first semester at college, I started really thinking about it and realized that I didn't really actually want to be most types of attorneys. I was interested in criminal law, but realized that my my extreme level of empathy and and some other sort of just personal things maybe made um, becoming a defense attorney or a prosecutor a bad idea. And so I was still interested in psychology, but was rethinking law school. I took a, a course on sort of careers in psychology, what to do with your major, and learned about all the different areas. So um, for any of the listeners who are interested in in psychology, either during high school or then moving into higher education, I will say one of the great things about psychology is that you can change your mind over and over and over again without ever actually having to change your major or lengthening your time in school. Psychology is so broad. It has a really bad reputation for, you know, you can't get a job right out of undergrad with a psychology degree. And to some extent, it makes sense because you're not going to find a job where they say, we want someone with a bachelor's degree in psychology. But rather, you'll find that the skills that you learn in your psychology degree match up with a lot of skills that they want within, you know, a a number of different jobs. So I actually teach a careers course now at Rhode Island College. It's a bit of an aside, but I changed my mind so many times. I learned about all these areas. I was going to become a developmentalist. I was going to become an industrial organizational psychologist and consult and fly all over the world, which I actually do get to do now as a cognitive psychologist um, when we're not in the middle of a global pandemic. I've dated us a little bit, but I think the span of the pandemic makes it okay. Um, And um, I, I tried all kinds of different things, but Towards the end, the later in my junior year, I realized that I really enjoyed education and school. And that was sort of the piece that kind of followed me in all of these different areas was learning about different things and teaching people and um, and helping people, but not in the classical way that some psychology students want to help people. I didn't really want to do therapy, but I wanted to be involved in sort of this thing that kids are doing a lot of their time uh, learning and um, exploring. And so I was interested in school psychology, but we didn't really have um, a school psychology program within the psychology department. So I did my honors thesis with uh, Dr. Jeff Carpicky at Purdue, and he 
does what I do now, applies cognitive psychology to education. And I fell in love with it and decided I was going to go get my PhD in cognitive psychology. I did that. I did my master's at Washington University in St. Louis with uh, Henry Rodiger, Roddy Rodiger, and then went back to Purdue to work with Jeff to finish my PhD and then got my tenure track jobs and sort of kept going from there. That's awesome. Talk to me about the learning scientist. So I see after you became this learning scientist, after you established yourself in this field, um, you started this cool little organization. So, or, you know, perhaps not so little. I'll, I'll find out here in a second. <laughs> yeah. So organization might even be a strong word. Um, and we, um, Jana Weinstein, she now goes by, um, by Weinstein Jones, but, um, Yana and I started the learning scientists because we were really interested in making the science of learning more accessible. So, you know, we realized we're doing all this research, we're trying to apply all of these different things, and we write in our little journal articles at the end about the way teachers can apply the science of learning to education. And that's sort of it. But there's there's really a whole lot of... Um, a lot of barriers for teachers, students, other educators to access that research. And even if you do then access the research, it's full of jargon and it's it's you have to read a lot of journal articles and really put it all together in order to um, to really apply the science of learning in a classroom. And we just didn't want there to be such a barrier. You know, we spent years and years in education figuring out the ways to read these articles and engage in research. Teachers don't have a ton of time. They don't have years and years and years to learn all of these things. Um, and so what what we decided to do was create the Learning Scientists, which really started as a Twitter account. Um, and then we we kept we kept going from there. Um, and we created the website and the blog and the resources, and it's really just exploded. But now the Learning Scientists is a group of four of us. Um, Yana is no longer in academia, but um, I continued the Learning Scientist project with Dr. Cindy Niebel. Carolina, Dr. Carolina Cooper-Tetzel and Dr. Althea Need Kaminsky. And so the four of us, we call it a project, maybe more than an organization, because really we're just trying to make the science of learning more accessible. And we um, put resources out on the website and we manage social media accounts and fly all over the place working with teachers and educators when we're able. Well, it sounds like a great organization. Um, looking through your research, it seems a lot of it circles this this term retrieval practice, which is something that I find fascinating. But um, before we jump into that, could you quickly explain to the audience what that term actually means? Yeah. So retrieval practice is some people may have heard of it as the testing effect, but um, it's been around for a long time. The earliest research was The earliest research that I can find is from 1909. So it's not new, um, which kind of shows how extremely important it has been to do this type of thing and make the science more accessible since it's been over a century um, and not everybody knows what that term is. But essentially, the idea is when you bring information to mind, like you might do when you're taking a test or a quiz or something like that, that's why some have called it the testing effect. But when you bring information to mind, it actually makes your ability to remember and apply that information later on uh, stronger. 
we know that there are a few different ways retrieval practice works. There are some indirect effects, which basically means that retrieval practice causes something, and then that something causes learning. So for example, retrieval produces feedback oftentimes on what you know and what you don't know. And having that feedback can allow you to allocate study time more effectively. Or for a teacher, it could allow them to review things that are going to be really important, but maybe aren't being grasped. And that can cause learning. Those indirect effects are great. But in addition, we know from the research that there's a direct effect, which means that the act of retrieving information itself improves learning. It makes your ability to remember and use that information more durable in the long term, and it helps you be more flexible with it. And so it's really one of the most powerful, in my opinion, powerful strategies um, that students can use. And you can implement it using brief quizzes or tests, but there's a lot of ways to to increase the use of retrieval practice aside from just tests. So for example, even just having students talk in groups or having them sketch what they can remember. And so that's why we like the term retrieval practice because it's a bit more broad. It doesn't focus just on tests and quizzes, although that is a, a big component of it. So that's 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 basically what it is and why it's effective. We're still trying to understand exactly what's going on that produces the direct effect, but from an applied perspective, you just sort of pile all of these really awesome benefits on to make it super powerful. For the direct effect, could it just be another form of spaced repetition, right? How is the, what's the difference between like just uh, you know seeing something at a regular interval versus seeing something you know on a retrieval practice? Potentially, but we we do know that when you space study. It's not as good as when you space retrieval practice, as long as the person is able to retrieve. So there is a little bit of a caveat. If you if you tell students to jot down everything they can remember on a blank sheet of paper and they just stare at the blank sheet of paper and they can't remember anything, even if they're trying, that's not going to lead to as much of a benefit as actually producing that information. Now, that's not to say that trying to retrieve and failing is a problem. There's actually some research to suggest that trying and failing still does produce some learning, but but really you kind of want to hit this nice sweet spot where it's difficult enough that it's not just, you know, I give you a sentence, a fact, and you recite it back to me. That's not really retrieval. That's too easy, um, but not so difficult that, you know, I say something to you and two years later, you try to tell me and you have no idea what it is. Um, so we, we do know that it's separate from spacing, but spacing and retrieval do go together really well. Um, spacing is another really strong strategy. And so those those fit very nicely together. Some of the theories about why the direct effect might be possible has to do with um there's, there's some elaboration theories that maybe retrieval um, incorporates some elaboration or connections in the mind. And, and while there might be a component of that, that's not actually my personal favorite theory. Um, I have a love-hate relationship with elaboration in general. I did my dissertation on elaboration. Um, there are some temporal theories, this idea of kind of mentally time traveling or thinking back in time to remembering something and making um, sort of temporal markers more clear. There's a handful of, of theories and um, it's it's interesting. Um, and I, I love hearing about what that field is doing. 
I am much more passionate about the application. And so I uh, personally don't enjoy doing the the theoretical research as much as I love to sort of play around with what's going to work really well in a classroom. That's not to say that the basic research and the theory isn't important. It's just not the thing that I get really excited about. Right, right. Okay, let's talk then about, since this is... No, the learning, the learning scientist, this is the, the point of it. How can we take something like, you know, um, retrieval practice and apply that practically into a classroom? And I will say one, one thing I hear often, especially on this topic, when I, when I pitch it to fellow educators, is um, their concern around calibrating this desirable difficulty for different types of students, right? How can you, how can you create a desire, desirably difficult um, assess or retrieval if every student has a different understanding going into it. So uh, I'm interested in the whole answer, but I have heard that pushback a few times. Yeah. So a lot of my work when I was a an undergraduate, actually doing some of my early research and then as a graduate student revolved around trying to figure out what format of retrieval practice was going to be best. Was it short answer or multiple choice? And with short answer and multiple choice, you have that push and pull where short answer is more difficult, but multiple choice leads to greater levels of success. It turns out it depends on the way the multiple choice question is designed. It can be just as effective as a short answer question if all of the responses the, all of the alternatives are plausible and it actually requires retrieval as opposed to just recognizing which one seems familiar. Um, but I did some of that work. I looked at, can we give students prompts to try to increase retrieval? And does that work better than what we would call free recall, which is just that blank sheet of paper? Um, done all kinds of things. And what always seems to be the answer, at least in my work, is retrieval practice is really great. The format doesn't seem to matter so much. The effect sizes between different formats tends to be rather small. But comparing retrieval practice to not retrieving, that's a huge effect. And so what I would say to educators is that doing retrieval is going to be really great. Spending a lot of time worrying about how to get the perfect retrieval activity in your classroom to ensure the maximum amount of learning is going to require a lot of effort and the returns are probably going to be not worth the effort. So, you know, can you make short answer questions more effective than multiple choice questions? Sure, probably. Is it worth the extra time that it takes for you to mark those short answer questions? Or is it worth some of the anxiety that the students might have? Maybe not. If you can give a daily quick quiz with multiple choice every day, whereas if you did short answer and you wanted to really give the students time to, you know, go over their answers and, you know, give them detailed feedback and you just don't have the time to do that every day. So instead you were only doing it once a week. I'm, I'm not sure that that would be the best option. So there, practical things matter. And I, while we could talk about what's going to produce the most learning, we can't take practicality out of it entirely. So I would say just retrieve and don't worry about the perfect, perfect spacing of it or the perfect method because... In the end, those are very small differences, and you've already you've already made it almost all the way up to the top of the mountain just by adding retrieval. 
the the other little changes are just going to be not worth the the hair pulling that that it's going to result in more than likely and that's true for a lot of these strategies too with spacing what's the optimal space i mean it can really depend on the specific topic with the specific student and whether or not they've had a good night's sleep and you don't you don't have any control over that um there there's a lot of quote unquote error with humans we we're hungry we're tired we're in a good mood um the correct cues just happen to be available we're distracted we're stressed it's almost impossible and so you know don't don't put so much on yourself um just remember that doing some retrieval is going to be really, really powerful and perfection isn't the goal. Wonderful. Wonderful. Let's get very tactical here for a second because I am curious. I see three camps in this whole retrieval promoter space, right? I hear people who say there should be no assessment tied to retrievals or or there should be very low assessment or, I mean, um, grades or whatever, marks attached to these. And then some say there should be very high stakes attached to these. Um, Which camp do you find yourself falling in? Low to no stakes is the camp that I'm in. And so think about it. You don't give your students a grade every day that then goes on their transcript. We're not we're not actually grading them at that level. Even if we are, we, ha- we might have a grade book where we grade all of these different assignments. At the end, the students have a grade for the course and we know how much they've learned overall. And hopefully the grade represents how much they've learned, but of course, you know, grades and learning are not necessarily the same thing, but we, we have to assign grades um, to some extent and so, or, or credit for completing a course or not. And so we can't get away from that. Um, even if we're talking about over in the UK where they're, the grades are really different. They don't have a GPA, but they have scores on these GCSE exams and so on. Still, it's all kind of culminated in this, you know, how do they perform? And so, um, If you are doing frequent retrieval, by necessity, they become lower stakes. Unless you are doing, you know, 30 retrieval quizzes where they don't get any credit at all, and then one that counts for everything. But I just don't know why you would want to do that. Um, So I am a proponent of frequent retrieval. And so by necessity, they have to be... There has to be a lot of no stakes or a lot of low stakes. You can't make every quiz worth 25% of their grade if you're doing 30 of them. (laughs) Like there's just no way to do it. Um, And so that's kind of why I come into that camp because I'm a proponent of frequent retrieval. There also is some research to suggest that when the stakes are higher, it can lead to a bit more test anxiety and uh, the benefits of retrieval practice in terms of learning might not be as strong. So a quiz that's not worth very much where the students are free to make mistakes and it's not a big deal, they're not getting stressed out about it because if they don't do so well, eh, it's fine. Maybe this one might be the one that they drop if you're dropping, you know, the X number of low scores or maybe, you know, It's a a point or two. It's not going to be the end of the world. That leads to actually more learning than, say, a final exam or taking the ACTs or SATs or that GCSE exam if you're in the UK, right? So um, that's another reason to go with frequent but lower stakes retrieval opportunities um, is is just because it, it can lead to more learning. 
those types of things to help students to overcome test anxiety, because then when they do get to the bigger tests, which we can't get away from, they, they're going to have to take the ACTs or SATs, or at least many will. Um, if they go on to medical school, they're going to have to take board exams. Attorneys have to take, I'm sure they're called something, boards, licensing exams, right? Clearly, I didn't go on that path for very long. Um, but you, there's there's just no way around it. We're, we're tested in many ways. And so being more comfortable in that setting and kind of getting over that can be can be really powerful. And so doing these frequent lower stakes can help them build up to the ones that are a little bit higher stakes. Also, if you are engaging in like having the students sketch out what they can remember, it would take an incredible amount of time to then score all of that. And that scoring is going to be required for making it higher stakes grading. So just so just don't grade it. <laughs> Make it worth a point for doing it and emphasize the student with the students the need for bringing information to mind, the need for the difficulty, the struggle, how that, you know, strategies that tend to um, produce more difficulty and make us feel a little underconfident and are actually the ones that help us learn the most. Um, so we, we need to do that. And um, the fact that we can learn a lot from our mistakes as long as we attend to the feedback. We shouldn't be trying to make mistakes. I've heard some people say like, oh, if you try to make mistakes because mistakes make your brain grow. To me, that sounds like nonsense, but you can learn from the feedback and errors can be really powerful if we then attend to those errors. And so creating a safe space to make errors, but then ultimately to kind of succeed at a a task that you've struggled with, you know, when you get to the end of the semester, say, or the end of the six week block for for your students, and they are retrieving the information that they couldn't before, and they're applying it in new settings. That's that's really powerful. So um, that that's why I'm in the low stakes or no stakes camp, Um, just practicality, and it allows for more retrieval. Let's follow that thread of practicality for a second. So let's let's pretend I am a teacher whose semester is about to start, or I guess some states already started their semesters, and I'm staring at my course plan, my syllabus. How can I actually very tactically implement these suggestions into this plan? What, what's your what's your starter kit for educators dipping their toe into this world? Yeah, I'm I'm a big proponent of small changes that will have a large impact. And that is really why I recommend against obsessing over, you know, is it this format? Is it that format? How do I, what percentage should the students be at? How difficult, you know, not worrying about that and just adding retrieval in. One of the easiest ways to implement retrieval and spacing into the classroom is to just give a very brief quiz at the top of each class that maybe you don't even score. Maybe you just go over it with the students. It could be kind of like an entrance ticket. Maybe you do one at the end as sort of an exit ticket, and that could be their participation grade, um, showing that they were there and that they were engaging, but encouraging them to do retrieval and to make mistakes and succeed when they can because it's good for them. But you could give them, say, six questions. Um, A couple, or maybe six is just a a number that we've we've seen in the past, but you know, a handful of questions about information that they just learned in the last class. Maybe that was yesterday, maybe that was a few days ago, but just a little bit of information from recent they're having to retrieve. Questions that prompt them to do that. And they don't even have to be specific questions. It could just be explain how X works or whatever. 
Another question that makes them think back to a week ago. Another question that makes them think back to a month ago. And then, and this is my favorite, a question that requires them to combine or sort of integrate information that they're learning now, so like last class, and that stuff from a while ago, like a week or a month ago. And the questions, it doesn't have to take a lot of time to create them. I've done this in my classes just off the fly. I'll say, uh, explain this to me. Tell me how these two things might go together. Give me an example of X. And so you could come up with these questions, have them to give them time to jot them down and then talk about what the answers might be or put them in pairs and let them talk about the answers and then come together as a class. You could make it take 10 minutes. You could even just do a couple of questions, you know, one from last class, one from a month ago, one that puts the things together. And you there you have retrieval that you're doing over and over again, you know, class by class, but you're not spending a ton of time prepping it. You're not spending a ton of time grading it. You're just taking a little bit of time out of class, which I know is valuable time, but this is a very powerful activity. And um, using that to let your students experience the direct effect of retrieval, giving them feedback on how well they're doing giving you feedback on how well they're doing and that can guide the rest of the class and it it really doesn't take a ton of prep time what sort of questions sorry to keep going back to this the very practical side but what sort of questions do you find to be best to include in this this exercise is it very conceptual questions is it very you know fact-based questions what type of questions do you see being most successful yeah i actually love talking about the practical pieces of it so um no problems there so um I, my personal thought is that we need the facts as much as we need the conceptual, you know, applications and those types of things. We need, we need both. So, you know, if there are facts that the students need to learn and remember, you can ask them those fact questions. Um, I would not quiz my students on really obscure facts. Um, I also think that retrieval practice can help students kind of get a sense of what is the most important stuff. So if you're asking them about specific dates, but the dates don't really matter. So for example, for me, when I teach cognitive psychology, I explain a little bit about the history of psychology as a field to situate cognitive psychology within within the entire picture so that they understand what cognitive psychology really is about. And if I then quizzed them on, you know, the year Ebbinghaus created the, you know, what what year did he publish his book? I mean, I tell them that because it's the late 1800s and it helps them understand sort of where we are in time. But I don't so much care if they remember that. That's not the most important thing. Um, although I will say spacing is in that book. And so for, the, for those who are interested in learning sciences, spacing is, I think, the oldest. It goes back to Ebbinghaus in the late 1800s. Is it 1896, if I'm remembering correctly is that when he said the spacing effect his forgetting curve I don't know <laughs> some I, I don't know I'll check after now I'm curious but anyway <laughs> I, I, I want to say I want to say 1889 but I, honestly 89, I don't okay. remember because no no don't take me I I have no idea <laughs> I'd have to look it up and the thing is because I don't I don't think that that's the most important thing right um you know, and I know how to find it. And if someone asked me, you know, I certainly could could look it up, but I'm not going to quiz my students on that. Instead, I might ask them, you know, like, what is spacing? Who was Ebbinghaus? What was his major contribution? Why do we care about Ebbinghaus? So there certainly are some fact-based questions like, you know, what is spacing? But then what's an example of spacing? Um, what's an example of retrieval practice? You know, how can we 
how can we put spacing and retrieval together? I, I like those types of questions, but certainly there are things sometimes that the students just need to know. My sister is a medical doctor. She's an OBGYN resident in Washington, D.C. And, you know, there's a ton of stuff that she just has to memorize and remember. But then there's also all of those things that she needs to be able to use and flexibly apply on the fly. And so I think a little bit of mix is good. And it also sort of tunes the students into understanding what is the important stuff. If there's something that they just need to know, they need to know the definition of of um, scarcity. They just, they need to know what it is for whatever reason. Quiz them on the definition of scarcity, but also make them come up with an example of it. If they need to memorize the steps of a um, a C-section, right? I, I should hope that my sister knows she could rattle off right. the steps of a C-section. <laughs> she performs them, right? Then sure, yeah, memorize those. That can be that can be helpful. But then she also needs to know more than just like rattling off the lists, the list of steps. Right. Let's talk about students because, unfortunately, many students and we will have students listening to this podcast. They are going to be in a class and their teacher doesn't know, believe, or want to put forth the effort to do something like this. So how can they use this sort of research to improve their own learning strategies? Yeah. Yeah. So with students, the recommendation, uh, the recommendation that I give is is to start with spacing and retrieval. Those are really powerful. And it does not they don't need to have a set of questions or a set of prompts. Um, they can create those on their own. But really for high school students, you know, these teenagers and um, into early, maybe into early adulthood, um, the way we define it, at least in the U.S., um, they should be able to take a blank sheet of paper and write or sketch what they can remember. They could also go to their textbooks or their notes, course materials, and pick out key ideas. I don't want to say terms. I'm going to say ideas write those down on a sheet of paper and then use those as their own kind of cues or prompts to sketch out. Now, they should not be grabbing a term and then trying to memorize the definition necessarily, unless it is one of those things that they've been told you must know the exact definition of this. More ideas. So can you explain in your own words what this means? Can you come up with your own example? If sketching helps, some things naturally sort of lend themselves to drawing. Some students like drawing. That's fine. All I want is for you to be bringing the information to mind. Get together with a peer on Zoom, even a classmate or, um, you know, meeting after school on a Zoom or if you're in the same area, you know, together at a coffee shop or whatever, and just explain ideas to one another, ask each other questions, but they don't have to be sort of these very specific test type questions. It could just be like, let's talk about this concept. Let's talk about the water cycle. How, how do the aquifers work? And they can go back and forth and explain that to one another, ask each other questions. Those are all ways of engaging in retrieval without a formal assignment. And I, I think that's extremely important. It's one of the best ways to study. And then go back and check your materials for accuracy. See that if there's things that you missed, check in with your teacher. But those are all, all really great ways. Um, and I mean, parents could even just ask their kids, hey, what did you learn in school today? And even if you don't understand what they're talking about, I don't remember anything from physics. Well, when I have a child and my child is taking physics, 
<laughs> explain it to me. I'm not going to know if it's right or not, but right. Tell me what you learned. Explain it to me. Those are retrieval activities, even though it's not a quote unquote test. And that is, again, why I really like the term retrieval practice as opposed to testing effect. Right. So a question I like to ask people like you or people, especially those in the professional development teacher training side of the world, which I know isn't exactly your background, but practicality is of utmost interest to you, it seems. Why are there still so many teachers that buy into the myths of cognitive science, you know, left brain, right brain, you know, only use 10% of your brain or uh, learning styles and teachers who don't buy into these these like retrieval practice that's existed like you said over a hundred years we go through teacher training this is a this is a thing we do you know professional development is a multi-billion dollar industry per year why is this still not in the classroom well i i have some theories um i can't say any of this is perfectly accurate um but my experience um my my sense has been that there are companies that latch on to these ideas, some of them being myths, and that that sound nice. Learning styles actually sounds really nice. Um, and they make a profit pushing those things. And then it a lot of the neuromyths that or the cognitive science myths about education actually come from a a nugget of truth. So with learning styles, for example, there are a lot of different ways for us to learn. And students do have preferences. One student might like to draw, another student might not. I personally like to listen. I like to do podcasts and those kinds of things more so than reading. Not that I don't love reading, but in terms of learning from something, I like to listen, especially if there's somebody who can explain it to me in an engaging way. And so, you know, it it sounds like a nice idea that the preference would be the way that you would learn. And it actually could become a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy if a student will only engage in that type of thing that they really like, or if they spend time sort of switching into that mode. So if a teacher gives you a book to read, but the student finds the audio version, they might like it more and engage in it more. These things could technically lead to learning. And so there's nuggets of truth. The problem is that we do not need to diagnose students as visual, verbal, kinesthetic, whatever, and then cater specifically to that style or else we are sacrificing their learning. That's just not true. But there are companies that make money selling these assessments and they have a a vested interest in getting teachers to pay for these things and thinking that teachers or schools really need um, really need it. And so I I think that's where some of it comes from. Um, There's a little grain of truth in there, but really we should all be engaging in a lot of different types of learning and certain certain um, areas lend themselves to certain types of style. So imagine trying to learn anatomy without a diagram of some sort. It would be very difficult. I think a lot of students, this is my own my own little pet theory. I have no idea if it's true, but I really, I hear a lot of, at least my students tell me they're visual learners. And I suspect that more students say they're visual, quote unquote, because it's common to see a written description without an image. It is very uncommon to see like a diagram without any words. 
So when we add the diagram in, now we basically have dual coding. And so the students attribute it to the diagram and they say, I'm a visual learner, but really they just need multiple modalities of explanation. Um, and imagine my sister trying to learn to be a surgeon without ever actually doing any kinesthetic learning or think about trying to learn to ride a bike by reading a book. It doesn't make any sense. You right, know what I mean? Like right. it's, it's just it's so there's but there's a nugget of truth in it. The left brain, right brain, there are things that are lateralized in our brains. Language is on the left. But that doesn't mean that someone who likes language, their left brain is dominant like that. Right. There's right. There's some somewhere we've gone adrift, right? Um, and so I think that they're popular because there's a grain of truth in it. And then there are a lot of people, there are a lot of these science people who t talk about themselves as sort of being like science communicators um, that are sort of in between. They're not teachers, but they're not researchers. And some of them are great and they're digesting both sides. But sometimes I think there's a bit lacking in terms of... Um, understanding of the science and the understanding of the classroom and what we really need in my professional opinion is more communication between researchers and teachers i have a lot of experience understanding research design and understanding cause and effect relationships and you know figuring out a way to apply something but i don't have as much experience in the classroom at least not like K through 12 classrooms. I teach, of course, at the university level. And when I was in college, actually, I substitute taught and substitute teaching is absolutely not the same thing. But I do understand that, you know, the classroom is hectic. And it's not just like students sitting at their desks quietly and attentively doing exactly what you say. I, right. I know that for sure from experience. Um, teachers have this great experience of understanding the classroom and understanding their content area and knowing how the students respond to certain things. And they we, we need both sides. I, I don't know who is both a kindergarten teacher and a neuroscientist and has the doctorate on one side and the doctorate on the other side and knows everything perfectly. It's just too much time and there's too many things to learn on both sides. And so I think coming together and both sides listening to one another and working together is going to be really great. And we don't necessarily need for-profit companies in between, um, like some of these learning scientists, or not learning scientists, learning styles people. Right. I think these neuromyths are funny, though, because ultimately it's the brain misunderstanding itself but this is such a common theme in learning science and even psychology in general right this that people are bad at judging themselves the illusion of knowledge right this this is a super common theme so what are some other perhaps if we haven't hit them yet counterintuitive things or or common neuro myths you see in the industry that you want to you want to squash I'm giving you time on the record to to add to this list <laughs> so I, I mean, in just just in terms of misjudging and misunderstanding itself, we are we are bad at making judgments of how much we are learning in certain contexts. So I think one of the reasons that repeatedly reading notes or like highlighting students love to go back and highlight the important things, those things feel like really effective strategies because while you're doing them, you're increasing familiarity and just the the fluency with which you are processing the information. And that tends to make you think that you're learning it well. But that doesn't mean that you're going to remember it and use it well in the future. So 
if your exam, if you're getting a grade based on your ability to seamlessly read, maybe out loud, your textbook, sure, <laughs> reread it over and over again. That's going to help you a lot. But that doesn't, the fluency and sort of recognizing the sentences, that, that doesn't lead to true understanding and application later. Now, of course, if you are misunderstanding, going back and rereading is helpful and trying to figure out, sort of stop and pause and say, okay, what is this saying? Can I describe it back in my own words? That's going to be good. I'm not saying that the textbook should be thrown out completely, but the we tend to think that we're learning a lot more when we're massing or cramming. Um, so just like repeatedly reading over and over again and and doing so with all of the materials in front of us. It makes us feel good, but that does not lead to great performance. We see these crossover interactions all the time where the thing that you think is helping is not the thing that's actually helping. Retrieval feels more difficult, but it leads to more learning. We see this with interleaving too, which is another strategy we haven't talked about, but it's this idea of jumbling things up, switching up the order. Um, it works particularly well in math learning, although there's research showing that it works well with conceptual learning and, and some other things. For example, like learning which paintings were done by which artist um, is just one example. But when students are learning in an interleaved fashion, if they're solving, say, a bunch of different types of math problems all jumbled up, they don't do as well. They might get around 80%, whereas a blocked practice where you're doing the same type of problem over and over again, they students will get up to 100% they, and they'll look like they've mastered it. But then a day later, this is research by Taylor and Rohr, a day later, the students who were blocking and at 100% might be at 30%. Whereas the students who were at 80% interleaving, they might be at 75%, something somewhere in there, right? So there, it's, it's durable learning. But if you stopped and just looked at how they were doing in the classroom that day with practice, you would assume blocking was better. And so we're just, we're just, when we're making judgments about how we're learning and remembering, we're doing it in the immediate now and trying to make judgments about future performance. And it's just difficult to do that. Um, if you really want to know how much your students know, have them put stuff away and try to retrieve. That's a really good assessment of like how well they're going to remember it. And of course, there might be some forgetting over time, but it's much less than if you have them reading and then telling you, oh, yeah, I think I get it. I'll remember that. Right. So um, that's that's kind of the biggest thing is when we're judging our own learning and when we're trying to decide what strategy works the best, it's not always what it seems in the immediate because of this fluency and familiarity that tricks us. Right. And overly it's not really simplistic, a neuromyth, but. Right, right. An overly simplistic heuristic we try to convey to especially all of our new students is that learning is hard. Right. And if learning feels easy, you're probably not doing it right. <laughs> so it's it's overly simplistic. But I think that gets us 90 percent there. Just recognizing that learning like exercise, which is a flawed analogy, I know, but like exercise, it has to be hard for it to work. And if it feels easy, if your bicep curl, you know, curling one pound, if it feels easy and go, wow, I'm great at exercise. It's like, no, <laughs> right. It needs to there needs to be struggle involved. That's how that's how it works. Yeah. And. And following that exercise analogy, um, I, I talk about this all the time when I'm talking to students about spacing. So at the beginning of a term, a course, semester, whatever, you might be like, I'm going to space and I'm going to study every day and do all these things, kind of like, um, you know, 
New Year's Day when we're like, I'm going to go to the gym five days a week at 5 a.m. And then and then it doesn't happen or like you go a couple times and then you forget to go to the gym on a Thursday or you're too tired on a Friday. And then you're like, well, I guess I'm not a gym person. And you throw the whole thing out the window. Don't do that. Um, It's okay if the plan that you came up with isn't working well, adjust it. But, you know, maybe you work out four days a week. Maybe you study four days a week, right? Or maybe you study for shorter amounts of time. Or maybe you just, you miss one, but it's not the end of the world. You don't have to throw the whole thing out and go back to cramming. You just need to make adjustments. The problem is you can't decide to space last minute. So you you have to come up with a plan and you have to stick to it. But if the plan that you come up with at first is overly ambitious or isn't working for you, adjust it because some spacing is better than throwing the baby out with the bathwater. I love that. I think it is kind of the responsibility of the educator to build this into their structures, but it is certainly still possible for students to do that themselves, you know, use use Anki, just use simple, you know, Leichner system, use flashcards. I don't, I don't really care, but anything is better <laughs> than, <Yeah>. than cramming. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, there's there is two ways to go about it, right? The teachers can bake it into the class. And then I think it's especially when we're talking about high schoolers who can, or, you know, are starting to gain some agency. And, and I know that's a big thing for the um, for the Sora group. The the, the teachers can build it in and explain to the students why they're doing it, but then also encourage the students to do it on their own so that you have it's it's they're they're doing it, but then they're also learning why they're doing it and they're being encouraged and supported to do it on their own so that when they get to college, it's um, it's not so bad. And every, everybody hits a point where it's too difficult. Um, I mentioned my sister already when she was in medical school. They talked to them about retrieval and spacing and talked to them about the fact that they may have gotten away with repeatedly reading and cramming for exams in undergraduate their undergraduate work. Everybody hits a point where it's difficult for them. And med school very well might be it for some of them. Some of them might have already hit that and they might have really good effective strategies from undergraduate work, but some of them might might not have needed the super effective strategies to get by and to do well, but they were probably going to need it now, now that they're in medical school, right? And so at some point, everyone's going to hit a, a, a point where the strategies that don't tend to work super well are just not going to cut it. And so coming up with those um, more effective strategies and making that transition is important, whether you hit that point when you're in middle school, high school, college, beyond whatever at some point you you are you may have to make that switch over to more effective and efficient strategies right it's funny it feels like 90 percent of the tools for thought or the spaced repetition community were former med school students so it's like this trial by fire push uh, you know half the students or whatever amount of students at least students want to succeed in that environment into finding more efficient paths but everyone else you know the computer science engineering students i went to school with they didn't have to learn any of this stuff cramming with poor math tests was perfectly fine we all did it but for people actually in a difficult program they need to adapt these strategies to not not sink right and what's difficult for everybody is is different, right? And I, I just, med students just have an incredible amount of information that they need to learn and remember. And oftentimes the structure of giving them their exams, I know my sister would take 
It wasn't like she'd have an exam in this class and then an exam in that class. There was like an exam day and they she had all of her exams for all the classes all at once. And I think sometimes they were even just mixed together because that's what the boards are like. Um, and so and, and, you know, they don't they don't get to it's not like. Okay, today we're only going to have pregnancy emergencies where you're going to be diagnosing preeclampsia. Like it doesn't work that way. They have to be able to flexibly use all of the different the different um, things that they know. Life comes at you interleaved. That's one of my favorite terms. Um, It you don't get to do all of the you know, all of the XYZs today. I mean, I guess sometimes you could schedule, say, like a bunch of C-sections for a day, but you don't know what problem is going to arise, right? You can't can't exactly do it that way. I so. love that. I'm stealing that quote. It's going on the wall. Thanks for that. Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. You can have it, have it cross-stitched. <laughs> <laughs> a question that I keep coming back to over the last couple of weeks for myself, um, which I just think is, is interesting, is for the last five-ish years, but it's become in vogue to talk about it especially this year is this replication crisis in the social sciences or there is psychology and most of their replication crisis circles around counterintuitive findings right and the funny thing is is our industry is very counterintuitive for the reasons we just discussed we're not great at diagnosing our own study habits or or knowledge so do you think this replication crisis is coming for any fields or any topics in learning science Probably. Um, so the replication crisis, it, it stems from some of the statistics that we use. So null hypothesis significance testing, which is the, the you know, when we talk about a P level being less than 0.05 is the accepted standard. Um, you know, it's, it's probability. To some extent, it's like predicting the weather. There is, there's going to be some error there. Right. Um, or predicting when when the next COVID outbreak will be. Right. There's there's some error there. We're trying to make predictions or making um, assumptions based on statistics and all of the information we have. And so, um, you know, the science of learning is not immune to that. One of the big things with null hypothesis significance testing, though, is trying to detect relatively small effect sizes. Um, you can you can detect smaller and smaller effect sizes the larger your sample is. And so sometimes, I teach my graduate students this all the time in the master's class, they tend to have this feeling that larger sample sizes mean better. It's better when there's a large sample size. And to some extent that's true, but it depends on what you're looking at. A quote unquote significant finding, and when I say significant, I mean statistically significant, meaning that um, we have determined that there's a very low probability that these two groups are the same. And so we're going to reject that and assume that the two groups are different. The manipulation had an effect. The The size of the effect that can be found gets smaller and smaller to where it might a statistically significant finding might actually be practically meaningless. Right. Um, and, and we're not immune to that. But... The effect sizes are robust, very robust with retrieval practice and with spacing. And it has been replicated since the late 1800s and early 1900s. Um, So I don't these these big strategies are not going away as 
as the ones that are particularly important. And we continuously see that repeated reading doesn't tend to work. And so um, the strategies that we talk about um, on our website with the blog and our podcast and all of those things are strategies where we have a fair amount of evidence to suggest that they're effective. And it's been replicated in a lot of different contexts and, you know, in the school systems and in the lab and all these different places. And so I, I don't think that we're going to find all of a sudden that, oh, we were wrong all along. Retrieval practice doesn't really work. We might get a more fine tuned understanding of it. Um, but but that strategy in itself isn't going to go away. When we write blogs or you know talk on podcasts, we'll talk about a specific study or you know a, a certain a specific idea. But we try to take the big picture um, in into context, and that's I think where having researchers doing this is really important because we have a body of knowledge, we know the literature, and there's new stuff coming out all the time, and we're reading and integrating, and that allows us to stay on top of it and to understand, you know, this has been shown X number of times, or this has been, you know, done in the, all these different laboratories. It just gives us a better understanding. And I, I just really think that teachers don't have the time for that. You guys have so, so much stuff that you're doing. Um, reading, you know, 30 research articles on a particular area and trying to integrate that is like not really what your job should be. Um, it should be done by someone like me who's trained and has that expertise. But then I shouldn't be just telling you exactly how to apply it in your classroom. It should be more of a conversation. And obviously, this podcast is somewhat unidirectional. I'm giving you information. But I do a lot of work where I am brought out to schools to talk with with researchers. And we have more bi-directional communication. And so um, I think those those things are important. Um, it's, it's especially important. Um, so... And another reason the replication crisis is a big thing in social sciences, it drives me nuts when people call social sciences like a soft science. I think it's a really hard science. <laughs> we're dealing with the brain and we're dealing with human error, right? Like some of the noise in the data is because a student in the experiment is really tired or somebody got up to go to the bathroom in the middle of something or whatever. There's noise and there's error. And so we just need larger and larger sample sizes to overcome those errors and then also to really titrate the effect size. So not worrying just about that p-value, but the actual effect size. As you increase sample size, the um, precision precision with which you've measured the effect size gets tighter. Um, and, and that's expensive to do. So um, there, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, and it, it we may be maybe getting a little bit too technical, but um, it's certainly an issue and something to pay attention to, but I don't think we have to worry about it for spacing and retrieval. Right. That's something I like to use to talk people off the edge. You say, you know, social science is all BS. There's no reason to listen to it. Look at this, you know, replication crisis, which is more common, perhaps not in your world, but um, especially in the tech world, which I, I straddle. Um, it's a common refrain at this point. But it's like, no, yes, some things are probably BS. <laughs> like, then uh, they write books about them and get Pulitzer Prizes and, you know, but the effect size is small and it's it's probably BS. So an example I'll call out is like ego depletion. There was a whole era, I mean, like especially in Silicon Valley, where people designed their lives around this concept of ego depletion. Now, I mean, it may not all be BS, but it's it's on pretty shaky ground. So yes, some things like that. But like you're saying, the retrieval effect, These you can design your life, you can design your school system, you can design 
your processes around these things because it's not it's not apples and apples it's two completely different types of findings so anyway that that was a brief rant (laughs) no i will say too that you know that that idea of that something comes out and we redesign our lives around it you know that's not exactly how science is supposed to work so right (laughs) like for example if you were just reading the new york times or the washington post and picking on the 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 types of articles I tend to read, but really any news outlet, um, you might think that nutrition is changing every day. Like coffee is really good for you. Coffee is really bad for you. Coffee is really good for you again. Like drink wine. Don't drink wine. Drink wine. Don't drink wine. Like it's all over the place, right? You can tell I, I drink coffee and I drink wine. Um, those are my those are my things. In reality, the science is not really changing that much. It's a lot of the science communication tends to pick out some specific article and then put it out there and say like, hey, here's the situation. But my aunt um, is a, she's retired now, but she's, um, her master's is in um, food science and nutrition. Um, she's a diet, uh, I'm gonna mess up her title, so maybe I won't even try. She has a master's in nutrition and she's worked in the nutrition field for a number of years and just retired. And, you know, if you ask her, she's like, yeah, the science of nutrition is just becoming more and more robust and we're just understanding it more and more. Um, it's not changing wildly. It, it It's just that sometimes the news makes it look like it's changing wildly. Um, and so that can happen with the science of learning, too. Um you know, some new thing comes out and we redesign our lives around it. And then, oops, actually, it's not as good as we thought. But that's actually how science is supposed to work. It's self-correcting. So if I'm a really good scientist, if I have a theory like like retrieval practice is effective, I should be trying to break that theory. Now, we've been trying to break that theory for quite some time and it doesn't tend to work out. So so what we really do is we tie to tight try to titrate. But you're you're trying to prove yourself wrong all the time. And if you can't, there comes a point where you accept, okay, this must be must be the thing. As opposed to like someone who maybe an anti-vaxxer searches online for anti-vax information, they find it and they say, aha, look, it's not what they should be doing. If they're really doing their research, first of all, they would be doing randomized control trials. But if they're if they're engaging like a researcher would, they're trying to find the opposite of what they believe. And if they can find that and if they can keep kind of integrating it, then they change their mind. Um, so anyway, there, there's my there's my rant on um, the you know biases of looking for the thing, looking for the answer you want, finding it and then stopping. Right. That reminded me of a I grew up in the South, a quick anecdote. <laughs> I grew up in the South and I would hear people say truly inane things like when like oh, I don't need to stop drinking soda and eating bacon because, you know, red processed meats are, they say they're bad today, but they'll be fine tomorrow, right? It's like science is always changing their mind. It's like, it's just a fundamental misunderstanding. And like you called out right now, we're seeing our country's severe lack of scientific literacy um, really on full display. And it turns out it's a super important problem. Yeah, yeah. Um, this, this is like a whole nother podcast episode, right? right? right. Like digging sorry, in, sorry. <laughs> digging in. No, 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 no. It's fascinating, and I would love to dig into all of that. But um, I'm not sure how. I'm not sure how far down that road you want to go. Um, but yeah, I, I, I agree. Um, it's it takes a lot to really have a full picture of everything and you're not going to be able to figure it all out so i mean i love research and i get really excited about randomized control trials and i know different types of evidence and but i i don't 
I don't personally, if I'm trying to decide whether or not to breastfeed my child, I don't personally go and read all of that research because I just don't have access to it all and I don't understand all of it. But I do follow people who really know what they're talking about and are digesting the research, like Emily Oster, um, who's somebody who's written on the topic. She's actually an economist, but um, she's really good at digesting data and she's written a number of books and she's she's sort of my, she's like one of my heroes because of the way she talks about research um, in terms of, you know, having pregnancy and having children and making family decisions. So I, I think, you know, following those researchers and, um, you know, s- searching for evidence and questioning, questioning all of the evidence that you he- that you see and hear and and trying to disprove it is is kind of the way to go. And then if you can't find the thing that says it's bad, that's that's measured and, you know, uses evidence appropriately, you know, using randomized control trials and causing, you know, determining cause and effect relationships, then you say, okay, this is great. Awesome. Well, thank you for indulging that that curiosity going down that rabbit hole with me Um, absolutely rabbit holes are my favorite me too me too (laughs) (laughs) since we're getting close on time i'll ask you a question which i try to ask every single guest but for you i'm 99 percent sure i know what the answer is going to be but we'll do the exercise anyway Uh, if you could wave a magic wand and change any one thing about traditional school traditional school structure what would it be oh gosh i well, more retrieval, but I also am, I really like the schedules that are starting to come out now to quote unquote avoid learning loss. So I've heard about schools doing like six weeks on, two weeks off, six weeks on, two weeks off and going much longer. I know it's tough to think about taking the summer away, but I, I think for kids, it, it really is a good idea to prevent them from getting completely burned out um, and and spreading everything out over time. And so I like this idea of m- more frequent breaks that are relatively smaller. I'm thinking two weeks is shorter than two months or whatever the kids get in the summer, but allowing them to spread it out a little bit more. Or maybe having a six-week block in the summer where they're doing a different kind of thing that's kind of fun. But that that really would help prevent learning loss and continuing to infuse retrieval, getting away from the word testing as a negative term. Um, I, I would just, I would love, I would love that, I think. Is it, was I, were you right? Is that what you thought I was going to say? Well, the retrieval certainly, but the second thing is, <laughs> yes. it's a nice, nice addition. Um, well, thank you so much for being on the show today, Megan. Um, for people who want to stay up to date and involved with you, your research, whatever, how can they do that? Yeah, so um, you can find me and uh, my team at www.learningscientists, so scientists with an S, dot org. And uh, since this is a podcast episode, I'm going to assume everyone listening is familiar and likes podcasts. And so we have our own, um, the Learning Scientist podcast. And so you can find that um, wherever you're listening to this podcast, probably. So Apple Podcasts, um, I think that we're on Stitcher, you know, all those all those places. And if it's not in the place that you want, you know, send us a message, go to our website, send us a message and we'll try to figure out if we can get on it. Um, <laughs> it's just a bunch of free resources or we don't really have funding. We just, you know, we're trying to make the science of learning accessible. We're not trying to turn a profit. And so, um, you know, we do the best we can. So that's that's where you can find us. And then on Twitter, we're at Ace That Test. Thank you for listening to this episode of SOAR's Learning Lab. 
Check out our other episodes for more thoughtful conversations with experts on learning, pedagogy, and more.